Hi, I'm Mary Swan, Artistic Director of Proteus, and you're listening to Indestructible. If you enjoyed this show, please share, subscribe and leave a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Christopher Harrison, to Indestructible, the podcast. I'm Mary Swan, Artistic Director of Proteus and host of this podcast. Christopher is a multidisciplinary artist working in performance video and animation. Works mainly in projection design for theatre, which is what you're doing for us on the show Indestructible. But your practice also spans writing, comics and performance. Chris has worked for organisations like Bristol Vic, but also corporates like Sony and Selfridges. And his animation and projection design for theatre includes Outlier for Bristol Vic, his solo show The North North and the Viking adventure Vinland by Jack Dean. He was finalist in the One Minute Projection Mapping Contest held in Tokyo in 2023. So Chris is joining me today to talk about his practice as an artist, his career path and what the opportunities and challenges are for the future in this area, and particularly around AI, which we got quite interested in when we were working on Indestructible, but we'll, we'll come to that in a minute. But Chris, do you want to just explain a little bit around what multidisciplinary practice means to you when you're working in theatre particularly? Sure. I think mostly it kind of means I'm a bit greedy, really, in, in that I like doing as many things as possible. My background really is sort of storytelling. Um, I originally did an English degree and then I trained as a, an actor. I went to the Lecoq School. So I've got a background in more physical theatre and story and text and things like that, which I've basically just really wanted to keep hold of as I've moved into different sort of areas of my practice. So the visual storytelling of projection design and things like that is just a bit of an extension of what I was already doing. That's at least how I view it. And it's maybe a bit more into sort of visual arts than I've been before. But essentially for me, yeah, multidisciplinary practices, using whatever tool is necessary to tell a story or to express something. Luckily, I've got a few different skills that I can draw on to do that. Do you think, because I think often when those of us who work in physical theatre a lot and kind of use a lot of visual practice and puppetry and things like that, do you think that is where that sort of interface with things like animation and, and technology comes from? Because I think a lot of people who work in projection tend to come more from a, as you say, a, a straightforward visual art or tech background than performance. I think the interest comes from the sense of like everything moving and being part of a visual language so in yeah physical theater you're using the body really to tell the story and the things that the body does in the space are the the tools with which you're expressing some sort of sentiment or yeah doing storytelling and projection for me was just adding another thing to the space there's a link with especially with like the cock training and sonography and set um, there's a whole sort of side course at the Lecoq School, which is all about how sonography can sort of move in the space, open up new and different ways of viewing the space and what that can tell you about what's happening on stage, the characters' relationship with each other, with the world around them. So I think they're, they're married very closely, and it's sort of quite an interesting way to go into more projection work because, as you say, yeah, a lot of people come from a visual arts background or a VJ background or things like that where... It's primarily a visual thing and that has its own set of rules and its own set of preconceptions and biases that are coming in about what the audience experience will be of that form. For you, that transition from pure live performance into then 
using projection and animation. What what was that journey? Was it about, had you always been drawing, you talk about comics and being into that. Was that the route in for you? Yeah, a big part of it was, so I had a, I had a theatre company and we were, we sort of tour around and make lots of, lots of work. And that was, that was great. And then as a sort of side thing, I was doing a little bit of illustration, starting to enjoy that and get into that. I've never had any formal art training. It's all been very much just me on my own exploring and trying out new things and getting paintbrushes out and doing things like that. And then when I made a, the solo show that you mentioned in the intro, The North, The North, that was very much just the first thing that I'd ever done with projection. But the way that I'd envisioned the story was kind of a graphic novelly comic sort of world, maybe as more of an animated film, because it was sort of very fantastical and it was magical realism, I guess. So it's relationship between real and unreal. And it felt like projecting my illustrations would be a good way to show that world that I was imagining. So I did some very sort of simple animating of the things that I've been drawing, using them more like puppets, I guess, than traditional animation, and then got hold of a fairly rubbish old projector from someone and uh, projected it onto the set. And I, I wasn't really aware of any rules or technical things that needed to happen with that. So there's quite a lot of trial and error. But yeah, it was great fun. Then after that, yeah, people started to approach me about working with them and And from that, it's just sort of grown and grown, really. It's interesting you say that about the technical rules of things, because I think I'd said to you that for me, kind of working with you on Indestructible was such a different experience from the last time I attempted anything with (laughs) with projection or animation on stage, which is going back a bit. I think it was probably 2014 was the last time. And, and, And for me, kind of knowing what you're able to do on the show and how solid that technology is. It's, it's quite astonishing how far it's come. I mean, it feels like you kind of really have a handle on all of how that works in terms of the technical end of it, the software and all that stuff. Was that a big learning curve for you? And does it continue to be? The technology is always moving on and there's always new softwares and things coming out and different industry standards. So the software I use isn't necessarily used by that many people outside of say theatre so things like QLab which is sort of industry standard queuing software which can do great things for video mapping but if you want to do some very precise or difficult things then you kind of need to start moving into other ones and new ones are coming out and some of them which are really good are also incredibly expensive I think the main issue really in video design or one of them is just the sheer cost of certain ways to streamline the process you can do things very cheaply and you kind of have to work it out and learn it a bit as you go and find solutions which is essentially what i was doing to begin with because yeah having a lot of different surfaces that you're projecting onto or lots of things popping up in lots of different places you will essentially have to find workaround solutions to stuff whereas now i can just go okay great flash that over there over there over there over there and that's a really helpful streamlining tool, but I think it's really useful to have gone through the process of working it out a bit. And then this past year that's just gone, I've had a Developing Your Creative Practice grant from Arts Council England, which has also massively helped my technical understanding of how projectors work and how things like networking and software and things like that all interact with each other because there are some incredible video engineers out there i'm not one of them but now at least i can talk to them (laughs) and understand what they're saying back to me which is helpful and when theater companies now approach you to do work i mean i saw the reason we connected was i'd seen vinland and saw your work in that and just loved that and really loved the 
that you know in a way the simplicity of it but knowing how complex that actually is to do but it just was lovely that sort of animation and projection element really elevated that piece for me uh, but, but when theatre companies approach you to do work to, is it often the case that they have a really clear idea of what they're doing or are people kind of a little bit like oh we'd just like to play with it or what, what do you tend to get do you tend to get very specifically commissioned or not it depends slightly on who's making the show and what kind of show they're making so I've worked on shows where they go, okay, there's just this point where we need CCTV footage and it's projected on this back square and that's the only bit of projection of the whole show. And you go, okay, cool, clear. And then you you know, you know, can make that really easily. And then other ones, there's a period of R&D, which we've also done on this show, where you try out a lot of different styles or a lot of different ways of working. And that's quite interesting. And you sometimes end up in different places. And other things, they'll just give you a vague-ish brief which can be quite nice because then I can just have my own design ideas and bring them in and then there's a back and forth about what that'll look like. But um, yeah, my conversations are usually with, if there's a, a writer, director and set and you know lighting and things as well are also part of the conversation, but set is probably one of the key ones. And then if say it's a devising show, whoever the devising company is, because a lot of the time, the way that I feel about projection in theatre shows is that it, is it's another performer on stage. Mm. So it should be kind of thought of as such rather than solving all the problems of a show. So if there's an issue with knowing where we are, we can solve that to an extent with the backdrop of a city or a cafe. But we should be able to do more interesting, exciting things to support a scene than just something that a character could say in a, in a, in a line, like, welcome to my cafe. Um, <laughs> We don't necessarily need a backdrop of a cafe. It can add and elevate a scene and give us an atmosphere. That's the only job it's doing, I think. Yeah. I a little bit about why projection. Yeah. Other than it's too hard to have all these <laughs> different locations. It's like the stock shot of Big Ben and a red bus, isn't it? In American movies, go, we're in London. I know what you mean. It can be quite literal as well. The Indestructible podcast was produced for Proteus Theatre by the brilliant team at Creative Kin. Getting the right people behind your podcast is so important and Creative Kin were a great choice to make our show. If you're an ambitious brand keen to expand your reach, go to creativekin.co.uk forward slash launch to find out how you can reach a new audience. And you were talking about R&D and one of the things that we got quite interested in with the R&D was, was around artificial intelligence and the, and the access to it and how artists might be using that. And, I mean, for you, what does that feel like an opportunity? How, how have you begun using it? It's an interesting one because I think there's, there's a lot of discussions at the moment in the broader video design, projection design community around what it's going to mean. There's less a concern necessarily about the tool itself, although there's a certain degree of whether or not you like the styles or how it comes up with. And there's philosophical questions about art, which they're not necessarily that pertinent for the job at the moment. But it's, I guess, about who's control, who's in control of the AI programs, which is you know, big commercial operations and things. So I'm slightly hesitant to create a means for my obsolescence and provide a lot of money to Google and things. That said, AI is proving very useful for 
workflow, especially in things like R&D, where you have to produce sometimes a lot of content quickly that you're not necessarily going to use. I know a lot of designers can use things like ChatGPT, say if you have to have a load of newspapers on stage that no one's going to read, but you want to have actual text inside, you can get ChatGPT, write me a Victorian newspaper articles about such and such, and then you can have those, and it's just sort of filler. I think it's very useful for those sorts of things, or yeah, trying out visual imagery, things like that. I think it's still very weird, a lot of the stuff it makes. And it's not aesthetically something that I'm particularly interested in or enamored with. It's cropping up quite a lot, especially in the big sort of events mapping things. The competition that I did earlier this year in Japan was the winner of that was a fully AI video generated piece, which... I think there was very clear artistry in it, and I wouldn't take that away from the creator of it. It's just there's something about it and the way that it moves that slightly creeps me out, and that's just a sort of personal view on one of aesthetics, maybe rather more than a sort of philosophical. Yeah, um, no, no, we found, yeah, we found that, didn't we, when we were playing with it, that it was, you know, as you said, it was the hands. I'd never looked at that before. The, the sort of less sophisticated ones can't do hands on visuals yeah. and things like that. Hands, but... feet, faces, mouths. Yeah, it's all. Yeah. It's just something very off about it. But I mean, that's, that was quite, was quite interesting, I think, in terms of what we were doing in the R&D, though, is that disquieting sort of quality of mm. that's something a bit wrong with this. Yeah, it's the uncanny valley thing, isn't it? It's not quite there. It's interesting you're talking about the, the projection mapping. So just explain a little bit about what that is and how did you end up taking part in the competition? The competition was an open call, actually. It was just, um, it's called the One Minute Projection Mapping Contest. I think it's now in its third or fourth year, but essentially you create a piece and send it to them and then they select up to 20 finalists. So there were 20 of us. I didn't actually go to Japan, unfortunately. But yeah, you're sort of invited out there and then they do this big projection onto a big museum in the centre of Tokyo. So that was quite nice to see my work up there. And it's quite nice to also do a piece which is just a, it's just a set bit of time and it's just sort of using the architecture because projection mapping and video mapping a video projection will come out as a square or a rectangle because that's how the, the files are made and what they look like but then through a variety of different methods i use software people can do other things within the actual file but essentially you are then either masking things off so you're cutting out bits that you don't want to be illuminated or you're then changing the geometry of the file so it fits onto the geometry of what you're projecting onto so that might be if say it's a, a building you might have to sort of tweak things and warp things a little bit so they they can rest on a sort of angle or there's different perspectives and things like that you often work with the template of the building or the object itself so you can make things very very precise and then the mapping itself is quite a simple thing of just making sure everything fits and the perspective is correct but you can get very far into things like UV maps, which essentially is building a 3D model of the thing you're producing onto and then using some very complicated maths to then have multiple projectors projecting onto it from all different places. It's not something that I'm particularly technically competent at. Um, I'm sort of aware of the theory of it and it's quite complicated. <laughs> um, but that's that's big in the sort of big companies doing lots of sort of very intense festivals for like mm. half a million people and stuff like that. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. I mean, it is. There's some great stuff on YouTube, isn't there? Various places that have done it. But as you say, it's kind of that way that you are able to map onto our set in the show is is just extraordinary. It just makes such a difference. And what for you? What I've asked everybody this, but what advice would you give young Christopher? 
<laughs> starting starting out. Because did you want to originally be an actor? Was that your first impulse? I think so. From until probably I was about yeah my mid twenties. I still well I, I always wanted to initially be an actor, and then I quite enjoyed telling stories and making my own work. And I sort of thought that was probably what I was going to do forever, really. And I still have that impulse to make things and to tell stories and do things like that. But this is a quite a nice adjacent avenue of collaboratively making stories and telling stories, which is really nice. But I guess for young me, if I knew this is where I was going to kind of end up, I think just maintaining a daily or as frequent as possible, like art practice, mm-hmm. probably doing some more technical art classes or courses or things like that probably would have been of great benefit because a lot of it's been very much trial and error especially with drawing and the more kind of foundational art techniques because without any training it's it's not impossible but it's quite hard and you're constantly looking back at stuff you did about a year ago and going that's (laughs) not how you draw hands or whatever (laughs) i think there's so many tools picking a few that you can get good at because a lot of the things that you learn in those things are transferable. Annoyingly, Adobe Suite is quite useful because it just interplays with a lot of different things, which is sort of annoying because they're they've got a bit of a monopoly. But there are free alternatives. And those are the tools that are being used by big massive production companies, um, have free versions or versions like that. So I think if I'd sort of known about that and got involved in those sorts of things a bit earlier than which give me a bit more of a, a head start at this point. I've got no idea what are going to be the new, because there's new things coming out every day. And then you're like, oh, well, everyone's using this now. Um, yeah. And then another thing comes along and it's even more sparkly and pretty. And everyone's like, oh, no, we've got to learn how to use that. <laughs> yeah, it's constant, isn't it? I, mean, I suppose that's probably the life lesson, isn't it? Is some areas like this you are having to constantly relearn or learn new things to do. But just to finish with, I've asked everyone to bring along a female artist that they feel more people should know. It doesn't necessarily mean this person is unknown, but just someone that isn't known as well, because that obviously, as I've said, is that was the first impulse of making this show was around people not really understanding who Lee Miller was. Have you got someone for us, Chris? I have got someone for you. I've got um, Paula Rago. Right, yes. British-Portuguese artist who died, I think, last year. And I think her only her first major retrospective was only the year before that, in 2021 in the UK. I think she's brilliant, really. But it's a visual world and a visual language which I think really chimes with a lot of the things that I value and make. She brings a lot of stories into her work, and a lot of those are from sort of fables or folklore. And I do similar things when I think about my work, and I think there's something very interesting about translating these sort of tales that we all sort of know into something and finding something new in them. But I also think her sort of visual style is extraordinary. And it's that, I think she calls it beautiful grotesque, or beautifully grotesque. And there is, I think, beauty in, in grotesque things and terrible things and things that are sort of unsettling to look at. I think it's a really interesting feeling looking at one of her paintings and feeling a sort of repulsion and attraction simultaneously. Mm. And I love the way she draws bodies and paints bodies. It's fantasy art, a lot of it, without having the sort of slightly cringe cliche of <laughs> a lot of fantasy art. I'm looking at you, AI. Um, <laughs> so much bad fantasy art. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if it's, your, if it's your cup of tea, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> Tends not to be very feminist, does it? <laughs> yes. 
don't know what part of your body that arm is protecting. It's not very much. Um, um, but yeah, I think I just think she's great, and I think becoming a lot more sort of known and valued. But considering who her sort of contemporaries were, the fact that it's really taken until this century, really, for anyone to properly go, oh no, she's actually a really great mm. painter and was doing something really interesting at a time when a lot of the other work was conceptualist and things like that she was taking into more surrealism and figurative painting into a more interesting space great no that's brilliant well thanks chris it's been lovely to chat with you thanks ever so much for coming on the podcast that's it for this edition i'm mary swan thanks again for listening to indestructible i look forward to your company next time